to episode one of the history of the women of England. I'm Natalie Bennett. The introductory episode where I set out what it's all about and what the plan is. This is a project that's had a very long gestation period. My women's history project was originally conceived somewhere around the early 2000s. History was one of the reasons why I moved to London in 1999 from Australia, if you're trying to pick out where the accent comes from. When I came here as a backpacker in 1990, I touched the wall of St. Bartholomew, the great church in London, and went, wow, this is almost a thousand years old. I came from an Australia where we still had recovered very little, certainly in popular knowledge, about our Indigenous history. And the Sydney that I grew up in, people would say, wow, I live in a Victorian house, and that would be considered really old. So I loved the history on the streets of London. But as I walked around, went on guided tours, read the blue plaques, what I found myself asking again and again was, where are the women? I spent several years thinking that. And over those years, I visited what used to be the wonderful Aladdin's Cave of the Waterstones in Gow Street, which used to be packed to the rafters with academic remainders, wonderfully obscure books that had sometimes been the best part of £100 that you could now pick up for a fiver. And one of the books I bought there was an anthology of early modern women writers, and one of them was the poet Isabella Whitney. She was, although born in the provinces, very much a Londoner, and her most attractive poem, to my ear at least, is her wonderful Last Will and Testament that functions as a magical, evocative portrait of London in the age of Elizabeth I. Yet I had never heard of her, and no one to whom I raved about her had either. And so a book proposal took shape in my head. The History of the Women of London, the Missing Blue Plaques in Print Form, each chapter an extended plaque on its own, the story of a woman of London, her female friends, relatives, colleagues and rivals, individual stories coming together to fill in the missing half of the many traditional histories of men. It started out as one book and ended up being a proposed four-volume series. It's a big subject. I had a lot to learn about historical research, about English history. My approach originally was voracious and scattergun. Some of the most fun I had was attending every research seminar at the Institute for Historical Research relating to women, from Jewish history to the English Reformation. I was usually the only non-academic attending, and as well as learning a lot, I did rather enjoy poking a stick into the spokes of the academic hierarchy. It's astonishing how questions are usually asked in perfect order of seniority, but I'd come in whenever I felt like it, and no one knew where to place me. And I spent many happy hours in the reading room of the British Library, as well as plundering the stacks and stretching the purchasing policy of the wonderful London Library. One of the great things about membership of the London Library is that they'll buy almost any book you request to add to the collection. So as well as laying hands on a potentially very expensive volume yourself, you're ensuring its availability to future readers. It became clear to me that there was a vast body of academic research being done in women's history, but little of it was escaping from the pages of journals and monographs into popular culture and paperbacks. So it was that I aimed to capture that academic work and turn it into something widely known and understood, and maybe even marked with blue plaques. The feminist historian Gerda Lerner said, why does history matter? 
the dead continue to live by way of the resurrection we give them in telling their stories. Yet until the past few decades, so many wonderful women who achieved so much were resting unremembered in their graves or in those academic journals read by very few. My intention then, as now, was not to engage in original research, although there are a couple of characters on my list, notably Elizabeth Gaunt, burnt alive for treason in the Rye House plot, and Dame Helen Branch, Elizabethan philanthropist, who were just crying out for serious study. I'll do that my best to get that started, perhaps light a spark. At the end of that period of study, I wrote an article for a feminist journal called Third Space that in some ways joined my new women's history passion with a thesis I'd written on texts on the internet, very much of its time, for a master's in mass communication from the University of Leicester back in 2001. It was talking about reviving women's stories, of helping them live again in human memory, using the then relatively new culture of blogging, Yes, it was some time ago. So that was one starting point for this podcast, a return to that prosthetizer for women's history from 2005. Although if I take the long durée view, its birth goes back to Australia 50 years ago, when a girl aged five was very frustrated when she was told that because she was a girl, she could not have a bicycle. That came from my ambitious working class grandmother uh, who thought it wasn't ladylike. This was a girl who saw her mother and her mother's friends disrespected as just housewives. This was a girl who became a feminist at age five. And as that girl was growing up, she looked for heroes, for models for life, and she didn't find any. This was suburban Australia in the 1970s, in a house without books, at a school that hadn't really decided whether it wanted us to become solicitors or the wives of solicitors, and it tended towards the latter. The only heroes I knew of were rugby league players and cricketers. The outside world, politics, culture, serious books, and certainly women's history, what there was of it then, were not part of my childhood. Antonia Fraser's The Weaker Vessel, one of the first big popular women's histories, was published in 1984, but it would be 1990, as a backpacker in England, that I first encountered it. As a teenager, I read Reston's By the Score, and again and again, all male heroes, the women with bit parts. I can still recite in full The Man from Snowy River, an epic poem, a classic dramatic young man's coming of age tale. There were no female heroes like that. The other poem I remember is Banjo Patterson's Lost, in which a similar young man comes to a grisly end. The female character is his mother, left to mourn, a traditional female role. The world has changed, and I hope far fewer girls are growing up that way now, although I'm not entirely confident about it. As the decades rolled on, I kept encountering plenty of dismissal of the contribution of women in the societies in which I lived, and ignorance of women's history. I kept being cold, told, because you're a girl, you're not even supposed to want to do that, let alone be allowed to do it. And fixing that has always been on my agenda. In my initial years working as a journalist, one of my passions was to record and preserve accounts of women's experiences. On a small local paper in New South Wales, in Australia, I wrote about Myrtle Jenkins, a farmer and housewife, and for 50 years an unpaid correspondent to the small weekly Eastern Riverina Observer that I produced. She used to send in notes from her community, Borey Creek, 
listed now as a population of 84 that I published in the paper. The one I recall the most was her memory of draft horses being used to pull a tractor out of the mud and her glee that modern technology didn't always top the old. I wrote about Amy Kleeman, an old age pensioner who'd grown up on the Alpha, a Murray River paddleboat, on which her mother was the engineer. When, as an Australian journalist, I did my second degree in Asian studies, what tied together a very disparate collection of subjects was women's history and feminism. In first year sociology, I picked my jaw up off the floor when a lecturer told me, radical feminism has nothing to offer sociology. Then I crowed quietly to myself when I won the prize for the best first year essay using, you guessed it, I don't think he did the marking. I looked at the prominent place of warrior women in Chinese myth and legend. I did Byzantine history as a subject a very boring account of battles and generals, and wrote a comparative study of the women of Byzantium and the women of the early Arab world. My honours thesis was on the female prime ministers of South Asia, but I'd settled in London, glad to leave Australia behind, and the book project of the women of London was progressing, if slowly. But then, on the 1st of January 2006, my life took a different turn. I'd just stopped working nights, as I'd done since arriving in London, at the Times and the independent newspapers, among others. And I was feeling a sense of deep dissatisfaction with the state of the world and concern about its future. So I decided to do something. I made a New Year's resolution and joined the Green Party. I'd never have predicted where it would lead me, and it took over my life. So my years of labour in the British Library, all those academic remainder purchases, sat in boxes gathering dust as I fought elections, became party leader, and then last year became a member of the House of Lords. But about two years ago, the second beginnings of this project were laid. For with politics, as it usually is, being all-consuming, I stumbled across can't remember how now, the History of England podcast. And I found a way that while I was cooking and cleaning, driving and gardening, and particularly when I was at the gym, having decided when I turned 50 it was now or never, I could distract myself from the politics. And I was very glad to get away from the Today programme. I'm a binge podcast listener. And so when I caught up with David Crowther's narrative, I found my way to Mike Duncan's History of Rome. And when I run through that, Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium, and now I've started on the new books podcast series, covering many social science, history and humanities disciplines. There are reportedly 8,500 of those, so they should keep me going for some time. But what I've noticed as I looked around this field, from the history of Russia to the history of China, was that nearly all of these big picture, long form podcasts, and most of the others, were being done by men. Of course, there are plenty of women presenting podcasts, but none that I've found in this big picture, broad spread of history, and not many doing women's history at all. Now, I've seldom seen a male-dominated field that I could resist entering. I was, after all, the first woman to play cricket for the Times team, and one of my smaller claims to fame was being the key to saving and almost winning a grudge match against the male, as well as having played soccer, as we called it, back in the day for the agriculture faculty at Sydney University against the engineers, by the simple expedient of standing on the field and refusing to move. My political tactics have got a bit more sophisticated with age. It's not hard to think of the continuing structural reasons in our deeply unequal societies why podcasting should be so male-dominated. There's the caring responsibilities that so many women carry, as we've seen recently magnified by COVID-19. There's having the confidence to say, I'm just going to do this and not care about what others think. There's having access to technology 
the resources, the ability to use it, the encouragement to just have a go and make it work. But it's still frustrating to not see more women and more women's history in this field. Now, I don't want to criticise all those men I've mentioned and been listening to, but they do tend to present a very traditional narrative history. Now, I wouldn't go as far as Karl Popper in suggesting that this is reducing the world's history to the squabbles of political power or Tolstoy's concern about the eroticism of power. But what is generally lacking in most of these tales is half of the human race. I could occasionally get critical about this or that podcaster's treatment of their few female characters, most the empresses and queens. But that's a broader fault of quote-unquote's history as traditionally conceived, not a criticism of the individuals recounting it. Now, it would, of course, be possible to tell stories about the general life of women, what it was like to be a peasant in the Middle Ages or a servant in Victorian times. But I've just chosen to go back instead to a very traditional form of women's history, one that perhaps started with Boccaccio's famous women, and indeed, in non-gender terms, goes back to Plutarch's lives. Individual biography gives a chance to dive deep, whether through the sources for an individual, where they exist, or to excavate as much as possible about women in that historical space, to try to help the listener identify with experiences, to draw parallels with their own lives, to see models and maybe even ways forward, to identify with this individual woman, to perhaps walk a mile in their shoes, to let these women live again in people's memories. Starting with Boccaccio, collections of the lives of individual women have often in fact, almost always, been a moral project. Generally, men setting out the stories of women and men as exemplars of good behaviour and bad, and drawing out lessons about ethics. But I'm postmodern enough to have no intention of drawing any lessons on behaviour, although I'll always be keen to show that women have held up at least half the world, and probably a lot more than that. Women today do two-thirds of the world's work, and I suspect that is a statistics that's more or less always held true. A notable English exception to the male lectures that essentially comprise women history for centuries is 17th century teacher, Bathsua Makins, an essay to revive the ancient education of gentlewomen, but we'll get to her as one of my lives in time. There's also, of course, the brilliant Christine de Pizan's 15th century The Book of the City of Lady. But for all the moralising, Boccaccio did us a service in the 14th century and was certainly a trailblazer in setting out what Pamela Joseph Benson called a pro-feminist text in his On Famous Women, with chaste women like Penelope and Lucretia beside queens and Amazons, and explicitly evil women like Medea and Flora. It was, as Benson says, a new way of looking at women and their place in history. Where before there were blank pages or absent paragraphs, there is now a female presence in the historical record. I also cannot not mention George Ballard, the English antiquary and biographer and author of the memoir of several ladies of Great Britain. He was working in a habit maker's shop when he taught himself Saxon and he was a friend of the scholar Elizabeth Elstob. His list has some similarities to my own and many women I considered. Anne Askew is not one of my main characters but certainly appears. Mary Astle, Catherine Parr, uh, Elizabeth Cook, Julian of Norwich, Marjorie Kemp. He had a pretty good list, and one that I certainly considered and checked against my own, although his bias is very much towards the uh, higher levels of society, where I'm trying to range as broadly as I possibly can. 
But surprisingly few women followed suit over the centuries. Norma Clark, in The Rise and Fall of the Woman of Letters, asks why Jane Barker, Sarah Fielding, Eliza Haywood, Dalviri, Manley, innovative, popular, admired writers were almost forgotten, while the men who were their compatriots, Milton, Pope, Steele and Swift, have got as close to immortality as any person who spends their life laying pen to paper could reasonably expect. I'm almost angry sometimes that these, my foremothers, like so many of their compatriots, did not do enough to ensure their own survival into the future. And I have to ask why. But for women to do, as Robert Vaughan suggested in the 1542 Dialogue Defensive for Women Against Malicious Detractors, part of the great debate about women around the period, for women to use their skill as writers to collectively benefit and defend themselves as a group, it was just too transgressive for most of the past millennia. To get ahead, to be respected, to make a living, women had to win the respect and backing of the overwhelmingly male establishment. Men often present themselves as the metaphorical or scholarly descendants of earlier generations of giant figures who it's in their interest to promote, to big up, to preserve their work. Lines of descent are preserved and celebrated. Women have had to present themselves as exceptional, individual geniuses, above and unlike others of their gender. Female solidarity was not a viable tactic. So, Judith Shakespeare, Virginia Woolf's fictional creation, did, in fact, exist. You might wonder who was the real Judith Shakespeare, the compatriot of the Bard, who made their way and succeeded. I have at least three candidates. Isabella Whitney, who I've already mentioned and who will appear later in this first season of the podcast. But also, I could suggest Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke, sometimes suggested as the real Shakespeare. Although when it comes to history, I'm very much an Occam's razor kind of historian. If we want to know who wrote Shakespeare, I've never seen any compelling case to say it wasn't Shakespeare, although there is uh, often perhaps quite a degree of snobbery among those who think that he wasn't uh, high enough or highly educated enough for the job. My third candidate would be Amelia Lanyer. When I was asked in 2015 in the general election as party leader to name my favourite poem, I went with her Ode to Cookham, a wonderful poem about living with, embracing and enjoying nature and being at peace with each other. Just a few lines from that. The trees with leaves, with fruits, with flowers clad, embraced each other, seeming to be glad, turning themselves to beauteous canopies, to shade the bright sun from your brighter eyes, the crystal streams with silver spangles graced, while by the glorious sun they were embraced, the little birds in chirping notes did sing, to entertain both you and that sweet spring. It always makes me think of a um, sort of overgrown ancient apple orchard, but still flowering, still being rich and fertile and fruitful. Yet, last century, Wolfe could claim to quote, Women then, who was born with a gift of poetry in the 16th century, was an unhappy woman, a woman at strife against herself. It's taken many decades of feminist scholarship to show how wrong Wolfe was. It's not that women haven't written great literature or performed great deeds at all levels of society in all kinds of ways, just that it's really been preserved and celebrated through the generations. Their efforts, and the fact they were not downtrodden and beaten, as Wolfe imagined, but active, imaginative, transformative individuals who shaped the society around them, is something 
that in terms of literature, the American Folger Shakespeare Library acknowledged with its 2012 exhibition, Shakespeare's Sisters. Yet all of this is very recent and has made little impact on popular history. In 1984, in her groundbreaking work, Joan Kelly could answer the question, did women have a renaissance with a resounding no? Yet her conclusions that options for women closed down in the transition from the medieval to the early modern can no longer be said to hold up. Which is not to say that there weren't more possibilities in medieval times than popular understanding today would suggest. But I start with the early modern times because that's when the sources really open out. But I've called this the history of the women of England, and I hope to circle right back to the beginning one day in this podcast. Just a few notes on what I have and have not included. I'm going to try not to assume too much historical knowledge in listeners. So each podcast episode, each life, will be to some degree a life and times. I'll assume the listener knows who Henry VIII is, but not necessarily the Earl of Essex in Elizabeth's reign. Sometimes that will explain how the nation's history is impacting on the women. Sometimes how they are impacting on the history. There'll be no queens. They get enough coverage in other places and not many women from the nobility. The aim is to range as widely as possible through the social scale, although the middling sort, as historians refers to those not aristocracy nor manual labourers in the times when middle class would be anachronistic, tend to predominate. My aim is to cover as many professions, occupations and types of lives as possible, for women have, literally, done almost every job there is in history, and I won't be able to cover all of those. I know, for example, of a woman prison governor, to modernise her job title, Mary Lady Broughton, keeper of the Gatehouse Prison in London, although only because on the 29th of August 1670 she was accused of wittingly and willfully suffering Thomas Ridley, who was in her custody on the charge of stealing a silver cup worth 25 shillings to escape. A communal history blogging effort discovered rather more about her that dates back to the days of the history blog carnival. I think you can probably still find lots of them out there, but I can't see that I'll manage a full episode on her, and there probably aren't a lot of other women jailers to flesh out the story. And wherever possible, I'll be using some of the women's own words. For some of the writers in my cast, there might even be short bonus episodes entirely of their own words. I'm also hoping that as the podcast develops, I'll have the chance to talk to prominent writers from Women's History Today about their work. Having listened to quite a few different podcasts, my ideas about what they should be like have of course been shaped by example. I'm quite a devotee of the Friends of Byzantium podcast, which has an interview structure, and one thing each guest is asked to do is to recommend books not necessarily in their field. I'm planning to adapt that and finish each episode with a book recommendation, something recent or something that stands out from my many years of records of reading on my blog Philobiblon. I'm also going to add a woman of the week, not from English history, but around the world. In my general reading, I come across so many wonderful female characters, characters I'd love to inspire others to explore. So first for this week, a woman of the week. And I should add that my pronunciation may often be uncertain, roaming around the world and having often read about these women rather than heard someone talking about them. So, the woman of the week sound effect. My woman of the week is Sarolt, Queen of Magyars, the Hungarians. She lived from about 950 to 1008. She was on the throne, wife of Gesalt, as they settled down from a nomadic pagan life into a Christian run. She was probably an Orthodox Eastern Christian, 
And so the wonderful tales we have of her is a hard-drinking, hard-riding, tough woman who once killed a man with her bare hands. Might actually be Catholic propaganda, but she was said to be the real power in the kingdom and helped to ensure that her son succeeded his father, despite the efforts of a would-be usurper. I learnt about her from the brilliant book The Barbarian Conversion from Paganism to Christianity by Richard Fletcher, which has lots of brilliant women. But now, finally, on to the book of the week. This is another piece of long-form, long-timescale women's history, possibly the most spectacular individual piece of scholarship that I've ever read. Jane Stevenson's Women Latin Poets, Language, Gender and Authority from Antiquity to the 18th Century. So distinguished feminist historian as Gerda Lerner was saying there were no more than 300 learned women up to 1700 in the entire Christian era, suggesting an almost total exclusion from the central language of scholarship through that great arc of history. Stevenson however, multiplies that figure by at least a factor of 10 and suggests many avenues of research by which it might be further increased. But this is more than a charting of new fascinating women from history, as important as that is. By finding these women, bringing them together and exploring their lives, Stevenson is forcing a rethink about the basic position of women over 1900 years in the societies of ancient Rome, in the medieval and later nunnery, and in the social world of the cities, showpace educated woman across a wide swathe of early modern Europe. Every scholar interested in women in any of these periods should, I'd suggest, check out this book. It sheds new light from different angles on their period. But I can hear potential readers say Latin poetry, particularly neo Latin poetry, is deadly dull. Do I have to? Well, while it's true that some of the verses are toadying paeans to princes, dutiful religious professions, or formulaic odes to nature, there's plenty of genuinely good poetry. Just listen to the astonishing Martha Marcina, the 17th century daughter of a Neapolitan soap boiler living in Rome, whose precocious talent was recognised when her brothers, left under her care after her mother died, made astonishing progress at school. But one of the boys was mocking the quality of her verse. She responded, You appear to be a straight-laced fellow and too severe, my brother, since none of my verses ever please you. This one is silly, you say. This is harsh. The other is wordy. This is flat. These are tumid. This one has a hole in it. These others collapse. You criticise innumerable faults in my verses. And yet it is I who compose the no good poems. You compose none. Martha remains single, living at home with her father acquiring a cardinal as a patron and publishing a collection of letters and verse that was dedicated to Christina, the former Queen of Sweden. Stevenson looks closely too at a poem written by a German nun, Willertrudis, possibly in the early 1100s. It's the story of Susanna and the Elders, who try to blackmail her into sleeping with them when they sneak into the garden where she's bathing. She instead cries out, and they claim they saw her with a lover. She's about to be judged when young Daniel steps forward questions the men's story and reveals its falsity. Stevenson compares the nun's work with the roughly contemporary work by Petrus de Riga. She finds that the male writer, in his choice of words, subtly blames Susanna. Her beauty captivates the old men. Her desirability draws them. Even when she tests the water before bathing, surely an innocent enough act, he draws attention to her nudity, and she is labelled a temptress. Willertrudis, the nun, however, had Susanna go to a pool in her husband's orchard to cool herself on a hot day, using a verb that suggests not full disrobing, but possibly no more than splashing herself with water. Her chastity and her goodness are held up as models. 
And when she is attacked, there is a torrent of metaphors. She's like a dove or perhaps a swan or a tender lamb in the mouth of a wolf. And even before Daniel's intervention, she is surrounded by a group of supporters inclined to trust her. She is then compared to the virgin martyr when she is taken before her judges, including her would-be assailants. The nun wrote, They have ordered the clothes stripped from her stuffed body, and they violate with their gaze the secret parts of Susanna, so that thereby a depraved mentality may be satiated by the sight. Oh, how wickedly perverse men become! after the worst. Then, while Petrus de Riga has Susanna stumbling and falling silent before her accusers, Willertrudis makes a long and moving speech declaring her faith and trust in God. She then goes unflinchingly towards a martyr's death. And when Daniel intervenes, he is acting not for himself, but as an agent of God, almost as a result of her own prayer. I think Stevenson is right. This is a woman telling a woman's story, and she finds plenty more brilliant work further rebuttal to the dismissal of work of women of the past by Virginia Woolf. So that in a way sums up what I'm trying to do in this podcast in a small way, telling a history of the women of England. For what was a project that was the history of the women of London has grown even larger. For I've moved out of London, I now live in Sheffield, and I want to be able to recover the stories of the women of that city, as well as many other parts of England. In my maiden speech in the House of Lords, I was delighted to celebrate one of those, the Chartist poet Mary Hutton, who was the wife of a penknife cutter, who wrote a poem entitled On the Poor Laws Amendment Bill, better than it sounds really, I promise, which spoke of the legislators of the, and the great allowing the poor to writhe with endless pain and misery. In the House, I looked across the, to the benches opposite the Tories and asked them to consider whether it was not the duty of the government to alleviate the suffering of those most in need, rather than add to it, as Mary Hutton had said almost two centuries before. And I'm going to try whenever I can to give you those women in their own voices, so you can hear those words from down the centuries. It is, in some way, giving those women immortality, a chance to live on again in human memory. An author writing on new media in 1999 called for us to think of ourselves as ethical ancestors for the wired world, saying it is up to us to take the technological base of our society and to build on top of it the structures we want to build. When I'm doing politics, I put that another way and say that politics should be what we all do, not have done to us. But back to history, what have you done today to preserve a woman's life, even your own for future generations? Maybe you should start your own podcast or blog on women's history or some other personal passion. Maybe you've been thinking, as I have or used to be, about a book project. But that's something that's likely to take a very long time. And that old Latin saw of carpe diem seems, in our current times, particularly pertinent. You can start a podcast with one episode. I've got a bit more than that, but this is very much a work in progress. I'm hoping to post the first couple of episodes very quickly, and then I'll be aiming for fortnightly when politics allows. But as most of us have to say these days, it all depends on events. I hope you'll be joining me soon, however, when I start with a woman who I regard as a bridge from the medieval to the early modern, Lady Alice Moore. Yes, perhaps best known as wife of Sir Thomas, but a major character in her own right. 